Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. There's no doubt 2020's been a nightmare for many, particularly small business owners. It's good to see some of the big guys banging the drum for these small businesses and local businesses. Mark Burris is one of those guys. If you're not familiar with him, he's founder of Wizard Home Loans, Australia's second largest non-bank mortgage lender, which he sold to General Electric for $500 million in 2004. He's now executive chairman of Yellow Brick Road, founder of The Mentored Platform, and host of The Mentor Podcast, a weekly business podcast with over 5 million downloads. Mark doesn't exactly have to work to put food on the table. However, he's clearly driven to work hard and help inspire others to fight on and win. Along with his podcast, Mark hosted the Celebrity Apprentice TV series on Channel 9 and the Mentor series on The 7 Network. Away from business, Mark's a passionate rugby league fan and is a long-time board member for his beloved Sydney Roosters. I directed an ad campaign for Mark about 15 years ago when he was busy running Wizard. I remember his boxer-like intensity and no bullshit approach to business. He's still got the eye of the tiger, but he has mellowed a little over the years. I feel very privileged to have him come and have a chat on my podcast. He's definitely one of the kings of this medium in Australia. Please welcome to The Blank Canvas, Mark Burris. Mark Burris, what an honour to have you here today. Yeah, well, thanks for saying that. Um, I'm honoured for you to say that. I, I, I've never done anyone else's podcast, not for a long time anyway. Um, I'm always getting asked and uh, my crew, they said, yeah, go for this one, so I'm Pretty happy to be here, and actually, it's good to get out of the office, to be honest, and be hanging out here and uh, just uptown Bondi. So, um, that's great. Wow, good territory. I'm amazed. I'm amazed you said yes, but I'm happy you did. Hey, um, look, I'm a fan because I love the way you support small businesses, business owners, and entrepreneurs. Like most of the people I've had on the podcast, well, the majority have sort of come from the arts writers, painters, singers, musicians or whatever. But the thing for me about entrepreneurs is there's a lot of creative behind any successful entrepreneur. And I think often we get this, oh, there's the arts on one side and they're artists and then there's business people on the other and, you know, they're not creative. Well, I think the great entrepreneurs, and I think you're a great example of that, you know, they have to be creative individuals to solve the relentless problems that are thrown at them every day. And yeah, sure, some are going to be more creative than others. I'm not saying they all are, but I like the way you flow power to entrepreneurs and business people and help them to flourish. Uh, well, it's sort of an interesting point you make. Um, I think all the artists, all the creatives that you just mentioned, they're all small business owners anyway. And all the small business owners are creatives. I mean, I, I guess there's a symbiotic relationship between being creative and being in business. They do two feet off each other. You can't be in business unless you're prepared to be creative. But if you're going to be in creative, you can't just be creative. You've got to be a businessman at the same time to succeed. Otherwise, you're creative. You know, it's like sperm in the gutter, mate. It's a fucking waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> you've got to you've got to do something with it. You've got to make it work so you can continue to do the thing you love. That's create. And uh, yeah, and I, I actually dig 
to be honest, as an individual, I dig being creative myself. I mean, that's ninety nine percent of what I do is process systems, structured, blah blah. It can be boring, but it's shit that has to be done. But what keeps me going or keeps me afloat is the one percent, and that's the stuff where I get a chance to create an idea and see whether it flies or not. Yeah, well, I mean, it's one of the interesting things about you because you seem to be able to straddle the two things pretty well. I mean, you're saying it's 1%. Looking as an outsider at what you do, I reckon it's probably a lot more than that. As far as 1%, I feel like you're injecting a lot of creativity in lots of facets of your business and particularly with your podcast and the way you mentor others, all of that. Yeah, I think you're no suit, I reckon. (laughs) Well, I'm lucky because I've got teams around me. So, you know, like I'm not a one-man show. So there's a cast and you know what it's like when you've got a cast. The cast contributes to the whole thing and uh, everybody's sort of creating on the run. You know, just over there behind you and to my left is young Lockie and, you know, he's part of the creative team and there's others in the organisation like him. So I just sort of set an agenda and they pump out the production and the production to you or to anyone else looks like it's maybe me creating a lot of times it's what they pump out. I mean, the actual bit I do is, as opposed to what I set the agenda for, right. which is what they do, yeah. the bit I do is the part where I'm always trying to predict my market going forward, Right. whether it's in my yellow big road business, that's the interest rate market, borrower market, or whether it's in the mentor business, and that is how do I help small business owners. I'm always projecting in the future, to some extent, what do I think is going to happen in six months' time? And then I try to build a product or a solution around that. You can use the same word, create, but I try to conceptualise something and it doesn't always fucking work. I mean, sometimes it just falls flatter on its face and you never see the things that fall flatter on its face. We only put out there in our productivity sense um, what works. (laughs) You don't see all the shit that doesn't work. And uh, and, and I'm lucky. My mum was a really creative person. My mum's passed away now, but she was into the arts and music and, you know, she made us all learn how to play the piano when I was year 12. I I did music for HSC or one of my additional subjects. Um, so I had a mum who drove us in that regard. Music was a big part of our house and theatre and I lived next door to Rhonda Birchmore and up the road with some girls in the Royal Australian Ballet. So we had a, as a kid, had a life of watching a lot of artists, both in theatre and both and on the stage. I wasn't all that fascinated by it at the time, but I am now when I think back about it, I mean, I was because I was just used to it and I guess that's just part of how I grew up. Yeah, that's a great insight into your upbringing. I was going to ask you about that. In your business, you're making money, you're delivering for your clients, you're predicting financial outcomes, all of that stuff. But it seems like you have quite a drive or a purpose to help people. Was that something that you were aware of at home? Was it something that was instilled in you by your parents to have a purpose that helps people in whatever career you're going on? Or was that something that just evolved along the way? Um. If I reflect back on my life, as a kid, I was just a normal kid. I loved to draw. I liked my music. I loved to play footy. And I lived down in the west suburbs. When I was a bit older, in my late teens, I loved to box. So I had this, like, this mixture of shit going on. And uh, I wouldn't say I was actually particularly passionate about any one of those things, but I just loved doing all those things. And I loved to be – I like being a good kid. Like I like to do the right thing by my parents. You know, my dad's an immigrant. We didn't have much money. We lived in Punchbowl. And, uh, you know, I, I was sort of fairly aware of the fact that my dad worked really hard and my mum also worked. So I was aware of that situation. So all I wanted to do was please my parents. Then I went through a stage where I left the home when I was 17 and I went to uni. And I started working in the eastern suburbs. That's when I became a rooster supporter. 
And uh, I started to think about effort equals reward because I wanted to have what all the, I saw all the people around me had. I became a bit more ruthless then and I didn't really give anyone anything. To be frank with you, I was fairly ruthless in the way I went about my career first and then my business aspirations. Um, ruthless in that I didn't go out to hurt anybody, but if you got my way in business sense, um, you know, I didn't have any trouble walking up top of you. So it took me a long time to sort of work out gratitude, that sense of gratitude. And uh, my mum was an Irish Catholic, so my dad's Greek mum's Irish. So, you know, I got this Irish Catholic, started off as guilt, but now it's more an appreciation of gratitude, how important it is to be gracious and to have gratitude. And it took me a long time to work it out. And one way I thought, well, there's no point just having gratitude. I mean, I actually thought this through. I'm 64 now when I was uh, late 40s. I remember thinking this stuff through and I just went through a divorce, my second divorce. I've had another one since, but my second divorce. And I started reflecting on how I could actually engage with gratitude. And the only thing I could think of was pay it forward. Pay forward what I've experienced. So, I mean, I'm lucky and I'm privileged to have been in the company of certain people in my life, business people in particular. It's no surprise. People know Kerry Pack was my partner and all that sort of stuff, but not just him, other people too. Clients of the law firm I work for, clients of the accounting firm I work for. And I thought, well, not many people get those chances. And so one way I can show gratitude is to actually pay it forward, actually tell people what I know and or think or have experienced. And then six years ago, I thought about doing The Mentor and it was called The Mark Boris Show originally and it was just a podcast and the objective was not uh, trying to make money, but it was just to tell people what I learned and ask people to come and ask me questions and let me see if I can give them an answer from what I've learned. I don't want any money for it. So... That's where that all came from. It took me a long time to grow up, a long time to mature, a long time for me to appreciate what I had been presented to me in my life. Not with saying we were a poor family, but I was rich and that actually a lot of things were given to me. And I started realising shit like, you know, it's not that important to make a lot of money. Like people say, oh, well, you know, on this date in 2004, Mark Boris sold his business for all his money, big dollars. But I got a bit sick of hearing that and that's what people want to talk to me about. And actually, we're starting to give me the shits because I think there's got to be more to me. And then I started thinking, well, maybe I don't present more to me. I don't present much more about myself to anybody else. And I was a pretty closed person. So I thought, I don't really feel like getting down there talking about my life. But what I will do is I'll start to do something about that. And the mentor was born from that. And, uh, you know, I've done I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of episodes and we've had you know, millions of downloads. And, and all I'm trying to do is just bring people on my show that can share their experiences with other small business owners. And hopefully people get some insight and uh, encouragement and et cetera about their adventure. That's cool. I love your podcast and it was one of the podcasts that inspired me to do my own. Thank you. Um, yours was, you know, one of the early trailblazers in the space. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so good job on that. Thanks for articulating that. That's really interesting and that it kind of parallels my observation of you over the years, um, what you just said. Because I did work with you. I don't know if you remember. I remember. We, um, I directed some ads yep. for, for Wizard. I do remember. And I have to apologise to you in advance of saying any more because I'll guarantee you I was a real shit when I did them <laughs> because I wasn't that patient. And um, I don't remember precisely which ads they were. You weren't with uh, Collins and Crew, were you? No. No. You, you come after that. Yeah, yeah. I did work with our crew. Yep. He actually, can you believe, gave me my first big budget commercials to direct back in the early 90s when he was a creative director at Lintas. 
Yes, right. And then he went to Collins and Crew after that, and they did my first ad series. Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't do that. The name of the agency will he'll, um, throttle me if I don't remember it, but it, it's just not coming to mind right now. But the creative director was Adam Searle. Yeah, yeah. And it was the Why Not campaign. Yeah, yeah. It was a great campaign. And was it with um, Jack Singleton and that's Colin right. Watts? That's exactly right. Jack that's Watts. A, that's Singo's right. kid. Jack. Yeah, that's, that's and right. And they come up with this brilliant campaign at Wizard We Say Why Not. That's right. They brought in Adam Searle as a creative director and I think it was actually his idea. But anyway, great campaign outside totally. the real estate agent. And in the spots, there was you talking to camera yeah. and then there was also a little narrative element with, you know, a couple. Was it nice or was it a bit no, testy? No, I'd say you were great. You were professional, no bullshit. But I've noticed you have softened over the years. Yeah, I have. Yeah. yeah? You, I'm mellowed. Yeah, you're lot, definitely yeah. mellowed. And Although these young fellows who are working probably don't, can't believe that, but <laughs> I, I was an ass. I, I wasn't an ass, but I was straight to the point. If you booked me for an hour to do something, yeah, you know, we're producing an ad, and you're the director, or whatever. Yeah, and I turn up, you got a fucking hour. Yeah, no, look, and don't fuck around with my makeup. Just get on with it. I think that's fair enough. Out. Yeah, I wouldn't say you're an ass. I would say you're a professional. Time poor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was just to the point. I'm sort of still to the point to some extent, but uh, it's taken me a long time to realise sometimes you just can't use a certain tone with people because they misinterpret your intentions towards them, which is never my intention, which therefore doesn't serve me yeah. because it's not what I want people to think of me. Yeah. No, no, no. I, th- I think you've evolved well. Now, it's really interesting. Just the thing on exchange, like the insight you gave us into how you – you know, discovered a way of exchanging. So you received a lot of money for your work and I've seen it in others and I've even seen it in my wife who's been, you know, famous for a long time, although it looks like she makes a shitload of money. Musicians in Australia don't make a shitload of money but sort of has the same problem in that there's a lot of attention. You know, she's a superstar, a lot of attention. People think we have a lot of money and there's always a lot of attention on her and I've always admired the way she handles that constant sort of inflow and attention on it she outflows so when she meets someone when she's doing things she's always looking at the person she's interested she's asking about them she's noticing what they're wearing so she just outflows to counterbalance that constant inflow and so when you have a huge success like with what you had there's a massive amount of attention and an inflow you've got going on you and so it's interesting how you you know, grappled with that. I, I found it hard to deal with. To yeah, be I, yeah. I really did str- not struggle, but I, you know, like it wasn't as if I was broke or something. But it's, no, that'd, that'd be worse attention. But it was a good problem to have. But it was confronting. Yeah, and the best way of doing that is outflowing by helping others, and that's what I've observed. And I think that's really cool because a lot of other people that have that degree of success and that amount of money, they um, don't deal with it all that well. And I like the way you've dealt with it, and I think you've positioned yourself well in Australia as an opinion leader for people and particularly helping small business because they are the backbone of the country. I like anyone who's supporting people to work and be productive because I know for myself my morale is always at its best when I'm busy and when I'm productive. So, And we've even seen that this year, haven't we, with COVID, like the way to really sort of mess with someone's mental health has stopped them from working, stopped them from producing. So... Particularly this year, it's been intense. You as a business owner, it must have an unbelievable amount of problems and challenges to handle. But I like how throughout, you've actually kept trying to help others grapple with these problems through this year. Well, that's helped me. Yeah, right. Me helping others helps me. Yeah. Look, Pissarro, the the great artist, uh, talks about work is the most important medicine for the soul. 
there's a lot of discussions about how you look after your your spirit or your soul, or your psyche, you know, whatever you choose. You know, and there's meditation and there's this and that. But his view was work, and uh, I agree with that. I think hard work actually it is meditative if you do it the right way, instead of looking at it as a tough thing to do, but as something you just got to do. It becomes meditative without you actually meditating, and it's good for your soul. It's good for your spirit. It's good for your energy. It's good for your psyche, and. Uh, I was a bit confronted when the COVID first started, more out of confusion, to be frank with you. Um, I was more confused about what's going to happen. I'm very politically aware and I was interested to see how everybody would respond globally, but particularly here in Australia and particularly here in New South Wales and Victoria because I have a lot of business in Victoria. I probably got too intellectually involved in it and then what happens is I tend to insulate myself and uh, just think about my little world. And um, like I had mentored because mentored allowed me to like you said that Kate does, um, sort of express myself in a sort of a nearly musical sense, I'm able to entertain. And our business is about entertainment as well as it's about education. I mean, you know, social mediums have got to be entertaining. They don't have to be me, people sound cheering and laughing or singing along, but entertainment in a sense like the news is entertainment, you know, current affairs entertainment. Uh, so we pitch our business. I mean, uh, that was a directive of the business for me to the guys, is let's make ourselves educational and entertaining. And therefore, I was able to be productive and, you know, I was able to deal with all the brain damage that I was getting from all the other shit that I was engaging and participating when I was watching the news. <laughs> then the election, <laughs> the US election, <laughs> then all the other stuff that's happened here in New South Wales and all the dysfunction that seems to be appearing on the landscape as we look around. Um, it'll all resolve itself. It always does. But, you know, still, it's all confronting. And so work for me is the solution for that. Yeah. It is for me as well, much of the time. You touch on news there. Unlike me, Kate and I, we don't we don't really have to be in the know with the daily news too much. We don't watch the nightly news. I mean, if Kate watched the news every day, she'd be too scared to go out and, you know, do her thing and stand in front of thousands of people and go out the door. She's so perceptive and so sensitive. Whatever she has that enables her to do what she does and write songs and, you know, deliver a song to thousands of people makes her incredibly sensitive to particularly bad news. And, I mean, you turn on the nightly news, I mean, the fear-mongering and the bad news that's been abounding all year has been intense. You have to stay abreast of the markets and the news and all the rest of it. How the hell do you deal with that and still stay positive and do what you're doing? Well, I'm lucky and uh, I'm not a very emotional person which is why, albeit I did music and piano right up until I left school, I haven't got a musical bone in my body because I don't have that sensitivity that a good musician has. My brother has it, my younger brother, but I don't. And uh, I'm not a very emotional and or sensitive person, which probably accounts for the reason why it wasn't until my late 40s that I actually started to empathise with what I should be doing in terms of gratitude and actually stood back and looked at the way I was behaving. I wasn't behaving badly, but the effect of my behaviour. I never intentionally put it that way. So I'm not very sensitive to things and I'm not very emotional about things. My major emotion is anger. I can get angry, but as I got older, it's not as bad. But uh, I don't really get sad or really get over happy either. I, I just don't have those sort of emotions or those tolerances of emotions. So therefore, the news for me, I'm just picking out of what I need to know. Right. And then I'm trying to piece together what effect it might have on me or how I might be able to leverage it. Okay. That's all I'm looking for. Okay. I'm just looking in there for the pieces of the jigsaw. There's a whole lot of pieces there. I really can give a fuck about everything else. 
I might be careful I say I don't care. I sort of do care if it's deleterious towards anybody, like if something bad happens and, you know, someone suffers. I don't like to see suffering. But at the same time, I don't really care how the election went, except that I want good order because that has an effect on me and an effect on the ones I love and all the people I care for. Now these days I care for my community, so I care now I care for small business owners too and self-employed. I actually care for them. I just choose sides. And then in terms of who I care for, the effect of it. So news doesn't necessarily have a negative effect on me. Some people become what the news feed is about, particularly actors, actresses, singers, performers. They tend to wear it. I had a partner for many, many years, um, and she was an actress. And I I remember that if something was bad around her, like a bad vibe, she would actually pick it up and it would really affect her badly. Yeah. It just used to bounce off me. But I know a number of other actresses like that as well, and actors. But maybe that's a trait that they have as performing artists. But I'm lucky. It just doesn't happen to me. So I'm being lucky in that regard. Maybe I learned that from my dad. My dad, an old Greek guy, leads a really simple life. He really doesn't give a shit about anything like as long as he can have his coffee and he can have his salad out of his garden and see his grandchildren and great-grandchildren and um have mum's ashes next to him on the bed every night and back out in the yard every morning and talk to mum's ashes and uh and have us come around his children come around that dad doesn't really care about anything else other than his brothers his own family so maybe i got it from my old man but uh that's the flip side of not being all that empathetic is that i don't get affected yeah well, you pragmatic and that's okay. Yeah, yeah. You're running a business, you've got a lot of staff. Yeah, I just never thought that way though. I wasn't even like that as a kid. Yeah, right. Um, my brother's the opposite. Yeah. I remember when my brother got married, he married a girl from Cambridge and so he invited me over to the wedding. I was the best man. And um, like in those days, you've gone back a long while now, at least 30 years, in those days, everyone took Rohypnol tablets to sleep on a plane. Today, the band, but... No one knew, you know. So I remember them. So I was, a, we were both working in a law firm and one of senior partners' law firm who remain nameless. I said, oh, I'm going to go Sydney, Hong Kong, somewhere else, and then somewhere else, London, you know, it's a big flight. Then I arrived that night. My mum's already there. She was living there at the time with my sister. And then I got to make a speech at my brother's wedding. So he said, We well, need some sleep. Well, you know, I was down the back of the plane. So he said, Take one of these tablets, these Rohit Mel tablets. I took the tablet. I slept from Sydney to Hong Kong, got off in Hong Kong, had to hang around for two hours got back on the plane, took another one, slept from Hong Kong to wherever it was, Germany or somewhere, and then got back on the plane, took another one from there to London. Got off in London, arrived at 6 o'clock in the morning. I went for a walk in Hyde Park because I was groggy as anything, because I'd never taken a sleeping day before in my life. Walked around Hyde Park, went and met my mum, who was already there. She was staying in a hotel, and I wasn't happy with the hotel. Booked her out of that hotel, said, come on, you're going to stay in the same hotel as me. So I booked her a room, and then I tried to sleep that day. couldn't sleep that day because it was daylight. And then the wedding was on that night, and I had to make a speech. My dad had to stay home because he had been ill and he couldn't make it and my sister stayed home with him. Mum was very sad that dad couldn't be there because, you know, their son's getting married. I went there to make a speech, had three or four drinks, as you do, <laughs> and bodies full of rohypnols, not knowing what the net effect of it would be. And all of a sudden I got emotional and I had to make a speech. I'd made millions of speeches and he was bagging me. He said, Leon, like he said, if I was making a speech, he said, I'd be bursting in tears. Well, fuck me. This Rohypnol and the cocktail of alcohol and no sleep and too much sleep and all that shit, all the weird stuff going on, I got all emotional. And I started choking on my words when I started talking about why my dad wasn't there. And uh, so that's what it took for me to get emotional. And my brothers never let me forget that day. I, I never took another Rohypnol in my life because of it. So it takes a fair bit for me to sensitise to a situation. 
therefore I can absorb a lot of news and I do absorb a lot of news. I mean, I watch and listen to news pretty much all day long, all day. From the moment I get up, it's either podcasts, yeah. mobile phone, all the various platforms, digital platforms, through to you know watching Paul Murray on Sky News before I go to sleep just to make sure I've got a balance between him and the ABC. Yeah, actually, that was my next question. Having worked in and within the beast for as long as you have, you know the game, you know how it works, you know how editorial is skewed one way or another, you know how advertising affects the editorial content and you've been around a while, you've worked with a lot of different governments and you've got your friends, you've got your business contacts, there's the political scene, all the rest of it. How have you navigated that at the same time? Um, Well, right now I would find it difficult to say what I am. Am I a a liberal in the sense of Australian liberal, that's a conservative, or am I more on the Labor side? Fair to say I'm not a Green, but but I, I, you know, I do have views on what we should be doing for our environment. Um, I navigate it because I don't see any one of them really stand for anything in particular. I think they all try to sit in the middle. When I was a kid growing up, Labor was Labor, looked after the working men, and Liberals looked after everything else, so the other side. I grew up in the West Suburbs, so I grew up in the district of Lang, which was like obviously named after Lang, the famous Labor Prime Minister. So I had a lot of working class views on politics. But my dad was always, he worked in a factory, but he was always trying things on the side. So he was always a businessman. He was always trying to do better and improve his life. So was mum. So I had a lot of liberal traits in me, being entrepreneurial, et cetera. And uh, today when I look at the news outlets, and they've actually moved further adrift from each other. So the left stations have become more left for whatever left stands for today. And it stands for lots of things. You know, it's every small community plus the left, what was left. The right is becoming smaller, but it's probably also more representative of the older age groups. And the right has lost the small business voter, I think. I really do believe that. The small business voter is probably where I sit. I feel more close to what they need to have happen in a political sense than what any of the parties offer to me as a voter. So for me, it's making sure I vote for the organisation and or sponsor or um, participate in the TV station that represents the least of the atrocities that could occur if the wrong party gets in. That's, that's how I feel. So it's about picking the better of the two evils for me. And I therefore engage with those stations that present the better of the two evils to me, but I also patronise the opposite side because I want to know what the fuck they're saying and I need to know where they're going. But I really think there's a big void today there's two million odd australians who are the self-employed run their own business i don't think they're represented by anybody they're underrepresented they employ around 70 percent of all people in this country employed so there's 11 million people in this country employed so they employ 7 million people over 7 million people so between that and the proprietors you're looking at 9 million people out of a population of 21 of which there's a, a quarter of them are children so you know we're talking about a fairly big percentage of australian population because you have to vote in this country, they may have to make a choice. They pick a side, but they're not picking a side that actually represents them. So I'm always thinking to myself, to answer your question, the way I navigate this is I'm thinking to myself, you know what, I'm just going to be an observer of the two sides of politics that currently exist, but I'm acutely aware of what's missing in politics. And if the first side or the first organisation that presents themselves to the eight or nine million people that I just mentioned, they'll romp it in. 
for me, they'll romp it in. And those are the organisations that I will definitely put my shoulder behind. Thanks for sharing that, mate. It's interesting. Yeah, because it's just such a head-spinningly confusing year politically. Like I've got a 16-year-old daughter and she's asking questions and you realise how many lies are in something when you find yourself trying to explain what's happening and you realise when something is so difficult to explain, you know there's so much false information and lies in there, there's no simple answer and you just sort of have to, I find myself starting and then I... Brain damage. Yeah, I find myself starting an explanation and then halfway through I go... Oh my God. That and sounds I just, stupid. Yeah. And I just stop and I go, honey. And then I just try and zero in on a, a very simple one line way or two line way of saying it to explain it. But through that process, I go, holy shit. I mean, I'm no genius. I'm no academic, but, you know, I'm fairly pragmatic and sensible. And if I'm having that much trouble articulating it in a simple way, you know, probably most people are. And so you go, wow, that's a pretty shit state of affairs well that's their brand you know if you or i were asked to go to some client yeah and mark could you create something for them in an ad or yeah or you know some sort of um visual program for them yeah with narrative and mark could you come up with a strap line and maybe think about what the message is yep um you and i would say unless we can say it in two lines or 20 words or less yep then we have not a good job you're right you or i could not sit here today, and I'm pretty smart, and you're pretty smart, like experience smart yep. in this stuff. Neither one of us could actually sit down and articulate in 20 words what our two major parties, let alone the Republicans and the Democrats in the US, what they stand for. You're right. They don't do a very good job of their own brand. No. They do not message me properly, so it's clear to me, because messages are about, in marketing or branding, messages are about me telling you my message and you being able to grab my message is so simple to tell somebody else. Word of mouth. Yep. They do not tell me what their message is and I'm close to one of the parties and I don't get it and therefore I can't tell anybody else. I can't, I can't pass the message on. Yeah. You're right. There's a real void there for somebody to come along genuinely with people's best interests at heart and deliver. And tell the truth. Yeah. And have open debate. Yep. Should we have the Adani mine or should we not have the Adani mine? I don't know. Bloody hell, it's complicated. Should they allow gas licenses in New South Wales or not? New gas license, new gas mines. I actually don't know. I mean, one party says no, the other party automatically says yes. <laughs> like, what the fuck? What's best for New South Wales? That's exactly right. And I, I resent the fact that at times, because I'm in the arts, that I'm expected to vote one way no matter what. But no, I want to look at the issues at hand and go, well, okay, who's got the sanest solution here? Let's look at that. Let's start at that. But you never get to see the debate. And and what happens is, you know, like we had an example in Victoria more recently with the old Premier down there and you're, you're from there. Whether he did the right thing or not, whether he's going to get voted back in or not, whether or not it looks like the polls are saying, you know, the majority of people think he's okay and they keep him there, it's not the point. He wasn't voted in to deal with a COVID crisis because COVID wasn't around when he was voted in. And he doesn't have the ability to govern, if I live down there, my view would be for, to govern for me and all my family and all my loved ones by making unilateral decisions. I need now to be more involved in the, not me, but we the people need to be more involved in the decision making. Governing means just mean you're the governor, like some old English concept where you just do what you're told. What you're telling me to do might be the right thing to do, but please explain it to me. I need to see both sides of the debate, not politically flavoured, not what ABC says, not what uh, Sky News says. 
somehow get me a platform where I can actually properly assess it. Not what Facebook says, not what Instagram says. Give me a platform that's neutral. Where is a neutral platform that I can actually assess the arguments myself in simple formats, not 50 PhD papers on it. Just give me a simple format, just an open debate on the issues. Face mask, no face mask. One and a half metres, 1.6 metres. You know, 25 kilometre radius or five kilometre radius. Um, Four months or three months. 10 people or 30 people, these are arbitrary decisions. It's the arbitrariness of politics. That's just one example, but the arbitrariness of policy is killing me, both sides. Completely agree. What's the most challenging thing that you are currently confronting as a businessman, as an entrepreneur? Um, probably my mental business is fine because um, it's a startup and it's it's new and it's doing okay. Um my objective there was not to make a lot of money. So I don't have other shareholders to answer to. It's just me. I own it all. Um, Yellowbrick Road is a financial service business. or a lender. And I have lots of stakeholders there. And I'm only 20% shareholder. Like I'm the biggest individual shareholder, but I'm still only 20%. There are lots of other shareholders. And what confronts me there is delivering to them their expectations. But all the shareholders have different expectations. One thing is I would like to see is a much bigger share price or a much better valuation put on my stock price. But my stock price is undervalued because there's no trading in my stock and no big organisation is going to come in and put a big order in for my stock because they won't be able to buy enough because it's controlled by four or five of us in terms of most of the shares. It's like free floats, what they call free floats, about 20% of the company. No one's ever going to come and make a big bid. So all we really got is people, what they call day traders, and they're in and out in a day and they trade a cent here and there. So what I'm confronted with is how do I grow that share price to properly represent the proper value of the business? At one stage, our market capitalization was $200 million. Um, today, the market cap is more like $40 million. But today, the business is much better, much bigger than it was when the valuation was $200 million. It's sort of counterintuitive, but it, that's how it is. And uh, so I would like to properly represent the share price for those shareholders who bought in at higher prices to be able to get their money back or their money's worth. That's, that's confronting to me. It doesn't keep me awake at night, but it's a, sort of a, a regret that I can't fix it because, it, I mean, I could get up and say a whole lot of shit about it and carry on about it, say how good it is and blah, blah, blah. But then to some extent you could be misleading the market a bit and uh, it's got to just survive on its own and, you know, we're in a recession at the moment, but we've got to be able to do more lending to more people and um, that is happening slowly, but it's a slow build and the, the market is somewhat unforgiving. The stock market is somewhat unforgiving. Unless you're paying a dividend, the stock market today doesn't like you. Unless you're a tech stock. We're not a tech stock. So, you know, we're a lender, money lender, and we do very well, but we don't, that doesn't reflect in the share price. So I am confronted by that and that's a lot of that's come out of COVID. COVID has affected that big time. Perceptions, we're lending nearly as much money now as we were same time last year, but just a little bit below. Wow. Yeah. So people are borrowing money. Don't worry about that because rates are so low. It's an yeah. incredible time. <laughs> rates are ridiculously low. And, you know, we got loans at 2.39%. You know, like that's a, a variable rate. And, like, that's crazy. Only a year ago, they were just under four, tad under four. So people are borrowing money because they're buying houses with their ears pinned back. Notwithstanding what you see on television, you know, and the, the media, People are buying houses. They, they go for auction. They're sold. Around here, where we are today in Bondi, a lot of people buying stuff unseen. They don't even walk in and have a look. Shit around here sells so fast. It's ridiculous. As far as house and land packages and, and that kind of investment and using them as you know a vehicle for wealth management or wealth creation, that kind of thing, do you think it's a good time for people to be getting amongst that? 
Yeah, I, I think any time's a good time to buy property. I, I'm a big believer in the land content of a property, so I'd like houses. So instead of buying an apartment in, for me, instead of buying an apartment in Bondi, unless it's sort of on the waterfront or something like that, but instead of buying an apartment in Bondi that's not particularly special, it's just to say good to better, for the same price I would encourage someone to go and buy a house out at uh, Harrington Park or something like that because you're buying land and buying a house. I, I just think that land carries better value. It's got more intrinsic value, more fundamental value. I always think it's any time a good time to buy. Whenever house prices are down, uh, generally speaking, there's a reason for the recession or something going on, which generally means that lenders aren't lending for some reason or they're being scrutinising people's income because there's a recession. They might not like to lend money to people in the whatever industry it might be because they might be worried about that particular industry. So it's sometimes it's harder to borrow money in a recession, which is one of the reasons why we have re- property recessions because people can't borrow money. So just because house prices are down or real estate prices are down doesn't mean it's a good time to buy. When house prices are up or real estate prices are up, that's generally speaking because the economy is going really good and people are going to say, oh, shit, I've got to pay too much. But it doesn't really matter because it's good to buy in a good market because generally speaking, you're going to get a tenant and you've got enough money coming in so you're always going to be able to afford to make your payments and hopefully if the market keeps going, you know, the, the price of your property will go up. So there's no good time and no bad time to buy a property. I take the view the best time to buy properties when you can afford the loan. So if you've got the deposit, you go along to the lender, and the lender says, look, I'll lend you half a million dollars on top of your deposit of 150, and you find something for 650, assuming the lender's being responsible, that basically is telling you that's when you should buy. And I would only say, if you've got 650 to spend, you might get more upside buying in Gosford for 650 or Harrington Park for 650 or some place down the south coast near a, an airport or a, a hospital or a school than you would if you spend, say, 650 in buying an apartment in Ashfield or some other densely populated area. That's the only thing I would say. I, I'm a big believer in buying regional too. Orange, Ballina, Lennox Heads, down the coast, Crescent Head, down the south coast, all the surfing places you know, um, all great places now. They're beautiful and, you know, COVID has demonstrated one thing for us. We don't have to live in a city. We yeah. just don't have to live in a city. I, I think we're going, we're going to see a big spike in regional areas like, you know, Bathurst or in New South Wales or the, the central coast in New South Wales. Ballarat and Victoria. Ballarat, a good yeah, example. Yeah. Well, we got a branch in Ballarat, at Yellow Big Road branch in Ballarat, and they are absolutely run off their feet. I bet. It's just... So drinking water through a fire as they are mental down there. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's a good time to buy for that sort of stuff. And you're buying a house and land, like you've got land. Yeah. What about commercial real estate? You were just touching on the fact it's, you know, people realising they don't have to be in an office. Um, do you think commercial real estate in CBDs and stuff is in trouble? Hmm, that's, that's a good question. Um, just from what people I'm talking to, you know, we have a big office in the city, um, you know, in Chifley, which is expensive territory. We have a couple of thousand square metres. It costs us a lot of money every year. And at the moment, I'd be lucky to have, out of the couple of hundred people who work for me, I'd be lucky to have 10, 12 people come in. And they can come if they want to, but they'd rather work from home. And I'm getting the same output from them at home. Is that right? Yeah, same output. But wow. put it this way, I am settling the same amount of mortgages today with 12 people in the office and everyone else working from home as it was one year ago when I had a couple of hundred people in the office. That's fucking outrageous. Uh, 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 totally. And these people are happy because they're not spending an hour, an hour and a half on a train or a bus. They're not lining up. They're not spending money at the cafe across the road. They're getting to pick their kids up at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and they're having dinner with their family and they get back on the tools at 7 or 8 o'clock at night. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not a customer-facing business. 
you know, like that part of my business is just processing loans. So that can be done anytime within a 24 hour period. As long as we get back to the broker who put the deal to us and tell them what the deal is approved or not approved or this is what we need to know, we're fine. So non-customer facing, non-experiential business, this is in other words, no one experiences anything from doing a business with us because it's all online. It's all done in documents. Um, I don't need space. So to answer your question, there are a lot of businesses in the city like that, big accountancy firms, you know, firms with 10, 15 floors of expensive buildings, law firms, same, stockbrokers. Maybe they need to sit at a screen, but not all the support staff need to sit with the screen and stockbrokers. Investment banks are the same. So I am seeing a lot more people in the city now than I was, say, two months ago. Like, the city's pretty busy at the moment. But my gut feeling is that everybody's going to need less space. Yeah. They're not going to say, oh, by the way, that extra floor was going to take six months ago. I don't need that anymore. And by the way, a lot of people are going to say the space I've got at the moment, I only need two-thirds of that. So the modelling that I've seen, mathematical modelling I've seen, is that on average, if you're in the city, you need, on average, this is an average is a, a bit misleading, but on average, in New South Wales, city office people need 40% less space. So expect somewhere between 40 and 10% extra space to come on the market when leases okay. expire or come up for renegotiation. Does that mean the commercial office market is stuffed? No, because I would hope our New South Wales government is bright enough, which I think they are, and uh, creative enough to start to think about things like, well, maybe we convert part of that city office building into apartments yeah. to bring some life back into the city. Yeah. New York style. Yeah. That, and that would be cool. That's a great solution. That would be so cool. Yeah. I mean, like, if my building, for example, if two floors of my building were able to be converted into residential, I would like to have a place there, as an example. And imagine living in the city, especially if the city's got some life, and being able to go to work, no far, no travel. It's cool. And then you would go to work there. And uh, I'm hoping that's what will happen. But I do see structural change and I see there will be a structural response, how long it's going to take, I don't know, by the governments in terms of the planning laws in major cities like Sydney and in New South Wales. Cool, cool. No, that makes sense. I can see Melbourne doing it ahead of Sydney. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. they're, they're like that. Yep. No, Melbourne's that's... a great place to live in in the city. Yep. It's cool. Yeah, you're right. So, look, obviously COVID's been challenging this year. What do you do personally? You've got a lot on your plate. What do you do when you're overwhelmed and confused, whether it's project you're working on or whether it's life, whether it's juggling family and other things? What do you personally do? I know you said earlier, you know, you work hard and that's kind of almost an outlet for you, a meditative kind of thing at times. But if you're having a shit day, you're overwhelmed, what do you do to get yourself out of that? I'm just curious. Mm. I train. I, I'm a mad exerciser. I right. mean, I've been boxing for a long, long time. Um, so, you know, I'm 64 and uh, as silly as this sounds, um, I'll do something like I've got blokes I know I can spar with. I'll get in and I'll spar with them. And uh, that actually, I don't know, just I get in that square ring and um, nothing else matters. You know, you're just basically trying to survive, especially the blokes younger than you. And um, I do that regularly, once every two weeks at least. The spa, that is. Spa, heavy spa. Or I body spa or nearly every week. But I definitely full spa once every two weeks, sometimes more often. Depends on how stressed I'm. So the more, not stressed, the more shit that's in front of me, the more I jump in the ring. That's probably the best way to explain it. Sounds a bit crude, but it's just my way of dealing with shit. And... Uh, I'm not a great sleeper, so I have a pretty strict regime in terms of um, when I'm like that, I don't drink. I don't drink much anyway, but I don't drink. I mean, I purposely don't drink. And I 
pretend I'm preparing for a for a bout that's coming up in six weeks. I start getting onto a program, food program, training program, run, skip, spa, you know, a little bit of weights, some of that. So I just immerse myself really early in the morning in training. And then um, at night time I have like protocols, phones off. No looking at the phone after six thirty, after the news, six thirty, seven o'clock. I just don't look at it. Zero. Don't care who's ringing me. I got a landline, only my kids got it. So if there's a family emergency, my dad's got it, they can ring me on the landline. Other than that, no one else has a phone number. Um, so I just tell you, I'm not going to fucking look at my phone. That's it. Phones can give you anxiety, um, for me anyway. Yeah, so I'm, and then weekends, I'm a mad gardener. So um, I love gardening. Not in a flower type sense, but I like to grow vegetables and I've got a beehive and, uh, and I've got a dog and, you know, I, like, I just say, okay, well, that's what I'm doing. I'm cutting shit down and I'm digging stuff up and off to Bunnings and buying more stuff and put it into the ground and watering things and putting chicken manure on stuff and uh, getting filthy dirty and, uh, yeah, I do that sort of really basic fundamental stuff. I guess they're all back to the point I made earlier. I'm just pushing myself, pushing myself, pushing myself and I get to a point where I can't think. I'm not going to think about anything. I'm just going to do what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do spend a lot of time with my dad. My mother passed away more recently and uh, my dad's 86. So every weekend I go and see my old man. He lives in Mossman. I go and hang out with him. We go for walks. We talk. He tells me stories about growing up in Greece and all that sort of stuff. So I get, I get a little bit of escapism from that. And I go see my grandson who lives just around the corner from him. Um, so I try to make it a bit of a family day for me too on, on the weekends. Always reserve Sunday for myself. You know, I'm not doing anything for anyone. Yeah. Like, you could ring me up and say, mate, I've got a really important thing. Let's sit and have lunch on Sunday. Or I said, no, not have lunch with anybody. I'm not, I, yeah. I, I'm not doing anything. Yeah. I won't commit. Yeah, yeah, no, gotcha. Gotcha. Do you think it's harder for kids of this generation to fulfill their dreams, start a business, be an entrepreneur, whatever, than it was a couple of generations ago? Or do you think with tech opportunities and things, you know, it's easier? Um, no, tech opportunities make it harder because everybody can access tech. So tech is um, ubiquitous and um, it's democratised. So everyone has access to tech as long as you've got a mobile phone. So therefore, because everyone has access, it's easier. It's harder. It's easier for everybody. It's easier for everybody else, therefore it's harder for you as an individual because you've got more to compete with. So I don't think tech actually makes it easier. I think tech makes it more competitive. I think it was easier in my generation to make a difference because there were places where you could make a difference. Like banking, for example, I could make a difference. Me and John Simons, we made a difference. Today, you can't make a difference because I'm already there and John's already there or Aussie's still there, Rams are still there, and there are others there. So it's that part's done and people have sort of have been educated on these concept of disruptive models, et cetera, and everybody says, well, how can I disrupt something else? And everything's been disrupted. There are going to be iterations of new disruptions, but there are so many disruptors today. It's like, you know, it's like nearly a proverb, you know, <laughs> he's a disruptor. Um, so, <laughs> you know, and whereas once upon a time was an exception. Now they're everywhere. So I do think it's harder from that point of view. But I also take a view, and I don't want to sound Gary Vanacek or Gary V like, but um, part of the problem for the younger people too is there's a bit of snowflakery going on, you know. Hey, harden up, sweetheart. Just toughen the fuck up. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Just cop it on the chin and get on with it. Because it, was never, it wasn't easy for me, but I also wasn't confronted with the competition that you have. So there's only one way to beat the competition. Like it's that story about, you know, Sam and John. They're in the jungle and um, 
Sam turns around and sees a tiger running towards him. And he says to John, fuck, there's a tiger running towards him. And John says, I don't know why, he's just going to run faster than you because you're only going to get one of you. So, you know, that's how you've got to be. You know, you just got to be better than the other person, one step ahead. And I think it's easier for the current generation in being one step ahead because they're better educated. They have better access to stuff that we never had access to. I mean, I was privileged and lucky to get access to Kerry Packer. Today, it wouldn't make a difference because those people have access to that sort of thematic everywhere. You're There's right. fucking gurus talking about shit all over the place, you yeah. know, and uh, they're everywhere. Yeah. Every Instagram person's a guru and uh, yeah. they, they just, you know, like for me, I had to interpret what Kerry was saying too at the same time and also run the risk of getting pissed on, like yeah. not literally, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Metaphorically. Yeah. But now you can, in a voyeuristic sense, read what everybody who's done well has got to say. It can be Steve Jobs from stuff he said when he was alive. I mean, they make movies about him. Like, That's right. So it is easier from that point of view. Access to how to yeah. is out there. If, you, if you're part of LinkedIn, LinkedIn used to have a thing called Linda. They've changed the name, but whatever it's called now. But they've got like a thousand podcasts on there or something and videos and uh, TEDx's and stuff like that. Like every successful person in the world's nearly been on there. And yeah. it's 20 bucks a month or something. And uh, there you go. That's right. So how do you stay with all of that out there, there are so many words of wisdom. There's so many gurus out there. Like, how do you stay authentic? You're really active in the social media space with your podcast, TV appearances, all the rest of it. How do you stay authentic whilst also espousing a lot of the words of wisdom? Is that something you think about? I don't, how I don't to do try that? to do it. Well, that's a good question. I'm not out there to compete with them. I'm out there just to be me. So the way I say authentic is just being me. Yeah. And, and I don't try to do what anyone else does because I, I, I can't do it. I can't mimic anybody. I can't – I'm not a method actor and can just copy someone else. Um, I stay authentic by literally being me, saying what I think. And, you know, the boys will come on and say, well, you know, we've got to put up a Friday ramp. What do you want to talk about? What's pissing you off? And literally is sometimes I don't have anything. I say, oh, like, nothing's pissing me off. I can't do it. They say, oh, you must have something. I say, I can't do it. I can't do it today because yeah. there's nothing really bugging me. Okay. But then on, a, on another day, two or three things might be bugging and it just comes out my mouth and uh, because it's real. I mean, it's yeah. how I really feel on the day. Yeah. It's not manufactured. How did you go on The Apprentice? Because, you know, in a way that's a, you know, when you're making those things, you've got producers and writers and they're wanting what they want. They're wanting that conflict. How did you manage that? I can imagine you'd be the sort of guy of like, no, I'm not fucking saying that again. I've said that. No, I don't want to repeat well, myself. Exactly I'm not going to say that to that person to have them cry or react or whatever. That's exactly what happened. So I wouldn't wear a bug. So I, I wouldn't let them put a bug in me. They tried for a couple of episodes, but all they're doing is squawking at me. Well, look, she's doing this and she's doing that. I ask her why. Fuck that. So I'd say I'm not wearing a bug anymore. Um, you just let me do it. And uh, I also told them I'm not going to call it the apprentice. I said, you're going to call it the Australian apprentice because I don't even like saying the words you're fired. So I, I, I made them take the bug. I, I just threw the bug out. So I'm not having right. it. So, yep. um, which meant they couldn't direct me. Um, what we would do, like, I guess you, you do know these things, but like I just explained to your audience, um, is that for every 42 minutes of television that they see, we shoot about 72, 73 hours of film. So that usually meant me full time, seven days a week for eight weeks to do 10 episodes, um, from, from 6.30 in the morning because I didn't get makeup and all the rest of the briefings through to, you know, seven or eight o'clock at night every day. Um, it's sort of a long, grueling sort of situation and people's nerves get a bit frayed um, and part of it is, by the way, which is one of the reasons I'm not doing it anymore, I, I just said I can't do this, I can't do it anymore, I don't want to do it. 
part of the reason they do that is because they actually want the celebrities, where it is celebrity apprentice or if it's just a normal apprentice, they want the people to get tired. That's part of the yeah. process, you know. Yeah, you need, you need them under react. pressure. I want to see how react under pressure. That's right. right. So, you know, like I became pretty good at being able to suss out when somebody was about to break down and then I would make my own decision whether I thought it was fair or unfair for that person to break down or not on camera. And I often pulled them aside and said, listen, you're making yourself look like a goose. Pull your head in. So I did it with Jason Akamanis. I actually stood him up and I said, mate, come and see me. Listen, you're making a fuckwit of yourself. If you keep doing this, you know, being confronting to me and to everybody else, I'm going to fucking destroy you. So I've got the camera, mate. I control this whole space. You don't. Yeah. You're going to look like an idiot. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember having Demi was there. Demi Hines was on one of my shows. And I said to Demi, I said, mate, Demi, look, I know Marshall really well. And I said, I said, listen, you've got to be careful. In these shows, the production crew in the edit are looking for a hero and a villain. And it's a soap opera. And this is how it works. Every week, we keep the heroes and the villains in the show. Ultimately, the hero wins. The show sort of selects that. If you want to be the villain, you look like one of the witches out of Eastwick. You know, you're going to look like a witch. And they'll paint you to be that. They'll make it look a lot worse. So every time you do something stupid, they got it on camera. They're going to pick that out. That's what they're going to put in the edit. That's right. And they'll cut the rest out because they, they earmark you. So be careful. You know, because I only said it to out of respect. I thought she's a good kid. You know, I really like her mum. And uh, I didn't want to look like that because I don't think it was a fair – but she just kept going and that's how she ended up. And, uh, you know, I felt embarrassed. Like, I don't want to be responsible for it. But that's another reason why I wouldn't do the show because – it's designed to do that. And uh, for me, like, I've sort of gone beyond that, to be honest with you. But, but I, I wouldn't let him tell me what to do, no. By the way, it was made clear in my contract that I made the choice as to who won. So it wasn't preordained who was going to win this show. Right. Yeah, so I did 57 episodes. They may have had in their mind who they would like to see win it, but it was never preordained. Yeah. It was always my decision who was going to be the winner. And to be honest with you, in the first two weeks, I knew who was going to win. I could just tell. Yeah. Just by talking to everybody. I actually think you did a good job. I didn't watch every series. I just watched bits here and there because I was interested to see how it went. And, yeah, knowing the challenges of doing those type of shows and how to do it and make it entertaining yet keep your integrity intact, I think you did a good job. Thank you. I, Hoff was my biggest challenge, David Hasselhoff. He, he, was, he was hard. He was hard work. I mean, I knew David because I, I used to take a girl out who lived in L.A., who was friends of his and uh, and I'd had dinner with David and his wife in the days he was married and it was like I knew what I was getting myself into and he was difficult to work with David, like like a true Hollywood superstar, which he is. You know, I didn't realise he was one of the biggest singers in Germany. The Germans and the Austrians love him because he was sung on the wall when the wall came down. Oh, and his right. name's David Hasselhoff. He's German or Austrian. Oh, oh wow. I didn't know he yeah, did that. He's, a, right. he's massive. He's sold millions and millions of albums in um, Germany and Austria. What a trip. M millions. And uh, I remember one time one of the shows, um, he said, um, so we booked him and, you know, he can't go until I fire him. And he said, look, I've got, I got to go. I've got to take a week off. I said, what do you mean to take a fucking week off? We can't take a week off. The show's for filming. Like, we can't stop filming, you know, because you've got the crew. And it's expensive. And uh, he said, well, I've been invited by Mr. Glock. You know the guy who invented the Glock gun? Yeah. He's an Austrian. He wants me to sing at his 80th birthday. <laughs> and he's paying me all this money. Can I go just for three days? Fuck, we had to 
put everything off, delay everything, and he went off. He got paid, I don't know, I think a ridiculous amount of money, but he went off to sing Mr. Glock's birthday. Like he's really famous in Austria and Germany. They love him. That is hysterical. Yeah, yeah. Bloody half. Well, when the wall was coming down, that period, if you remember <laughs> yeah, the period, yeah. he was on the wall singing some weird song in German, like, uh, and they're all going mental for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. He, he was really difficult to handle. Like, David came around my house one. I said, look, I feel sorry for him. So I had this big apartment, a real grouse apartment in the city, right? And, um, and I wasn't living there. We put him at the Fraser Suites and he hated it, right? He had a girlfriend at the time. He said, can me and my girlfriend stay, stay somewhere? I said, well, we stay at my joint. I don't stay there. I mean, I've got a 500 square metre apartment in the city, right? I said, you can stay there. We put him in there. He rings me up. Where's the spa? I don't have a fucking spa. Which level is the spa on? Like, I mean, just walk around and look, there's no fucking spa there. And uh, where do we get fresh towels from? Like, there was already eight towels there. Like, he's, he thinks he's, like, in some Hollywood spa, you know? Like, then there's someone downstairs who's magically going to come, here, Mr. Hasloff, here you go. And then I said to him one day, I said, mate, come around my house. Because what we did is we really did something bad. Like, a current affair did a job on him off a YouTube thing that was put up there where he was drunk and been an imbecile and his daughter put it up or something like that. Anyway, he's on the show. So we're filming while this is going to air on a car. So it was a major drama. So we had to make up to him and everything like that. So I said, come around my house for a barbecue. So I invited a... Uh, a guy called Chris Hancock, a mate of mine, his wife, Dee Smart. I remember Dee Smart. From yeah, she's a, uh, how good are her paintings, by the she's way? She's very good. I've got some of them. And Dee and Cocky came around and a couple of other couples and, and we're in the backyard. And I said, mate, any dietary things with your girl? Because you know, he wasn't allowed to drink alcohol. That was a part of the deal we had with him. He said, no, no, she loves chicken. I said, okay. So I got out and got chicken. This is an Aussie barbecue. So I'm in the barbecue cooking fucking chicken. I got all this chicken there with chicken wings, chicken legs, chicken breast, chicken everything. And then I got steaks and stuff for everybody else, big salads. You know, I got up early, early, made all the salads. One o'clock, you suppose, there. No, David. Two o'clock, no, David. Three o'clock, no, David. Four o'clock, David rings the bell. And he's there with four other people, including his girl. And I said, uh, I said, man, what the fuck? Who are these people? I said, but well, you're fucking three hours late. Oh, yeah, but I had to go on a bridge climb and I met these guys here. And I told them you wouldn't mind if they come in and enjoy the barbecue. I said, what the fuck? I said, you serious? I don't even know these dudes. Like, it was just random, right? And he comes in and, uh, you know, everybody's all excited because Dale Hasloff's there. And, uh, and his girlfriend was lovely. I, I think he's still with her. And um, she was very young. And she said, I said, oh, look, I've got some chicken here for you. What, I can't remember her name. I've got some chicken here for you. And she looked at it and she didn't eat it. And anyway, as the evening went on, because we started really late, I said, David, is everything okay with your girlfriend? Like, I bought chicken. She just hasn't eaten anything. She had a bit of salad. He said, no, but she only eats Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I went, what the fuck? And uh, <laughs> I, got, I, got the sh- I went, Jesus, like you've had to told me I wouldn't have had to buy all this chicken cook at all. I could have just got some delivered or something like that and could have given a bucket to herself. But like, but the way he said in front of everybody, it, and it didn't bother him. It, it didn't register like what it sounded like. And she just sat there and copped it sweet and just, you know, the day went on. So I actually had a lot of fun doing the show in that respect. The celebrities were really cool. You know, one, one stage there we, we did a thing at Don Barrow Supper Club like at the beginning when it was a big thing and at the, the Regent when it was called the Regent, um, you know, we did one night there. We did some pretty cool stuff. It was fun, but it was another era for me. I can't see myself dressing up in a suit and having a shave and <laughs> slicking my hair back and smiling for all the photographs and standing there with Sophie Monk or something like that. Like, I just don't think it's going to ever happen again. <laughs> Gold, mate, about to wrap it up. Tell me about the Roosters. You're on the board of the Roosters, obviously a, a, years a passion. Now. Yeah, it, it is a passion. Um, you know, you asked me how I sort of de-stress or de-do whatever the words are. When the footy season's on and in a normal period, I mean, that's it, footy for me. I mean, I just love football. I mean, I was a State of Origin sponsor for 10 years, New South Wales sponsor for 10 State of Origin and uh, the Roosters. I'm lost in the summer period to be frank with you. And, uh, and I can't wait for March to come back, you know, for us to start playing again. 
so I, I love the Roosters. The board is an honorary position. Um, you know, I've been on there for a long, long time now. I'm on the, both the Leeds Club and the Football Club. We meet once a month and, uh, and it's honouring that it's voluntary. And uh, But I love contributing to the club and, and listening what's going on with the footballers, but at the same time helping with the administration and making sure that we've got enough money to pay everybody and our sponsors are happy and, you know, everyone in the club's okay, especially during this COVID period. You know, that was a very challenging period for us as a Leeds Club, so the Leeds Club closed down. And the Leeds Club sponsors the football club and we get a lot of money out of the Leeds Club, you know, for the players. So we had lots of deals within deals and everybody was very responsible and uh, and responsive. And, uh, you know, we didn't have the best season in the end, but, you know, we did pretty well, I think, given the circumstances, but, you know, not well enough. Um, but no doubt the boys will bounce back for next year. Football for me is, you know, my sons are all Rooster supporters. Football for me is like a common denominator in my life amongst my friends and my family. It's the one common denominator that just about everybody who's in my life actually shares. Football and then Roosters, probably even in a closer group. You know, we talked about you and I earlier, talked about David Gingell. Well, Gingell and I are both mad Roosters supporters and the whole heap of us, like uh, like the milieu of Gingells, if you know what I mean. And uh, and we're all Roosters supporters. That's a supporters. scary thought. That's a, that is a scary thought. Well, you knew him when he was young. He's not like that anymore. Uh, uh, he's, uh, he's mature. Yeah, yeah. He's a good guy. Oh, that's classic. Bit of trivia for you. I actually directed the launch commercial for the NRL competition. So I directed about 20 of the Super League ads where there was the two rival competitions. In 96, 97? Yeah, that's right. ARL versus Super League. So I did, yeah, most of the Super League ads. And then when the two comps came together, directed the 92nd launch ad, which was, you know, it's actually one of my- That was 98. Was it 98? Yeah, that was, yeah, it came out. That's right, 98. Yeah, because I sponsored New South Wales off the back of- the Super League War. So Tui's was a sponsor for New South Wales, if you remember. Yep. When the Super League War uh, kicked off in 96, 97, yep. um, Tui's pulled out and New South Wales didn't have a sponsor. And that's how I got, got it cheap. I got the sponsorship of New South Wales. And uh, 98 is a very important year to me because that was my introduction to sponsorship. And one of the greatest memories or joys and experiences in my life is actually sponsoring New South Wales for 10 years. That, that was just for me, a wonderful experience, um, yeah. both as a wizard person, but also getting involved in those days with the various coaches. In those days, the coaches were extremely inclusive. So, you know, they would include me in the dressing sheds. They'd bring me down, like when Freddie was playing, Gus Gould was a coach, um, Bellamy was a coach in my period, Junior Pierce was a coach in my period, Tommy Rodonikos was the first coach. Oh, so I wow. That, yeah. So that, great characters. Oh, yeah, totally. And, you know, great opportunities to oh. meet some really cool guys and players like, you know, Adam McDougall and all those sorts of guys, Harrigan and, yeah. you know, and, you know, just it was a really great period that I fondly look back on as a great part of my life. That's awesome, mate. I think the first Melbourne State of Origin, was that a wizard uh, Yeah, it was. One? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. I think Kate sang the anthem prior to the match. I was in. Yeah. I, I was at the it was ground. A, wizard, actually, wizard was sponsoring it. You're right. It was the yeah. first New South Wales-Queensland game taken in Victoria. In Victoria, yeah. You know what was interesting about that? I mean, I for me anyway, was to stand in the dressing sheds when they lost because the experience, like it's like no other experience I've ever had. Like it's, it's all or nothing state of origin you win or you lose and if you lose it's like a death it's like the most uncomfortable thing the first time yeah. that i had ever experienced you don't know how to stand how to look you don't know who to talk to anybody everyone just sits around with the head down in their you know, in around in their elbows yeah and uh they're just staring at the ground but when they win it's the exact opposite like it's it's like 
the birth of their first child over and over and over again. Like it's like, yeah. there's nothing in between. It's crazy. That's an experience I'd never had before. I'd never seen that. And uh, like just told me about, um, oh, you know, when you put everything on the line, both physically and mentally, and you have the expectations of 80,000 people at least in the stadium riding on the result. And um, millions watching. Millions watching and how young men feel in those circumstances, both win and lose. They're so diametrically opposed. I just couldn't. I couldn't describe it for you. The experience was just something quite amazing, and I know it was, like, it was absolutely like a death. Like someone who just died when they lose. Wow! And wow. Uh, they all, so they're, they're elite sportsmen, so they all sort of blame themselves. They're all pretty tough on themselves. These guys. Yeah. They're different to first graders. They're, they're they're the elite. These guys. They are extraordinarily tough on themselves. Absolutely. Well, mate, that's a good point to wrap up because it's state of origin tonight, do yeah. or die. You betcha. So, so let's hope it's a, a birth and not a death for yeah. New South Wales. So go the Blues. We've got to win. Thanks very much. It's been great. <laughs> Cheers, Mark. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, there you go. I hope you enjoyed discovering more about what makes this legendary Australian entrepreneur tick. I certainly did. If you're enjoying the podcast you know the drill subscribe rate review tell your friends and if you're on apple podcast please leave a review and rate the podcast it really helps there's also the website the blank canvas until next week live large the blank canvas is produced by lee rogers and me rin mcdonald with audio support by jason murphy at gas inc and music by rodrigo bustos This has been a Milovich production.